let this be a reminder to you all that this organization will not tolerate failure. Gentlemen, let's get down to business. We've got a lot of work to do. Last week, I preached a sermon titled, uh, The Rich Man, Lazarus, and Dr. Evil. And we watched that clip, we watched the, the, whole, the whole thing, and I read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and then I addressed an elephant in the room. I said, the elephant is a question, and this is the question. Is God Dr. Evil? And by that I meant, does he torture some people endlessly in flames while enjoying an endless banquet of love with others? Now, there's a variety of ways, many ways that you can view this story, the rich man and Lazarus. I'm not saying you have to agree with me, but I am saying that if you view this story through the lens of popular cultural Christianity, God does look an awful lot like, like Dr. Evil. However, if you view this story through the lens of biblical Christianity, things begin to change in a rather fascinating way. And so last time we noted uh, these things, that Jesus was speaking, number one, to the Pharisees, the proud men of Judah who justified themselves. Secondly, the rich man is at least Judah, Abraham's great-grandson, who had the purple, the linen, the law, and the prophets, and five brothers. Third, Lazarus appears to at least be Eliezer, or Eliezer, of Damascus, Abraham's Syrian Gentile servant set to inherit Abraham's house if Abraham does not have an heir. And number four, Abraham is Abraham. That's, that's who Abraham is. And, and Abraham has a fascinating knowledge of consuming fire. I didn't mention this last time, but in Genesis 18, you can read an incredible story. Abraham has this extended conversation with a God-man, arguing with him, uh, trying to convince him not to destroy Sodom with eternal fire. And yet Ezekiel reveals later on that God will restore Sodom. Chapter 16, you, you ought to read it. He annihilates her and recreates her with eternal fire. And Abraham now seems to be at peace with this fire. Uh, number five, this flame in Hades must be the Shalhabet Yah, the, the, the very flame of the Lord, the manifestation of God, and God is love. And number six, no one can cross the chasm, but Luke has already told us Jesus came to destroy chasms, and according to Ezekiel 37, raise the men of Judah from Hades like dry bones and lead them all across the chasm into the promised land, the seventh day. Well, once you read the story through that lens, uh, the story is no longer unconscionable. God is not Dr. Evil. God is love, and his word is the Shalhabet Yah. Once you know that your father is not Dr. Evil, but instead of Dr. Evil, absolute love, it changes every breath you take, changes every move you make. 
You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. People ask me sometimes, Peter, what does this theology mean? Spell it out for us, what it implies. What does this theology mean? Listen closely. It simply means you can be a Christian. And you have really, really, really good news to share with everyone, everywhere. That's, an ev that's what evangelical means, an evangelical Christian. Once you read this story through a biblical lens, it's no longer unconscionable, but gospel. Really, really good news. It's no longer unconscionable, but it, it is, it is, it is a bit shocking. I mean, the people you thought were not saved, Syrian Gentile beggars, seem to be saved. And the people you thought were for sure saved, you know, religious people who have the Bible and who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? I mean, these sons of the kingdom are weeping and gnashing their teeth in outer darkness like not saved. If not endlessly, at least for a time, perhaps even an age or an eon. So the story is no longer unconscionable, but it is a bit terrifying terrifying, but not because God is evil, but because God is absolutely good. And we are not so good. And God is bound and determined to make us not so good people into the very uh, image of him, the one who is, who, is, who is good. You see, this is not a story about endless conscious torment for other people. This is a story about God's discipline for the sons of the kingdom, and I think that might be us. God is love and we are his children and the Lord disciplines them that he loves and that's us. And so perhaps you were thinking even last week, dang, I better repent. I need to repent. How do you repent? That's a good, good question. Well, this story isn't just about a rich man named Judah. It's also about you. You know, a Christian is rich, and a Christian has been grafted into the family tree of Judah. Lo and behold, even betrothed to the king of Judah. And so you're rich. You are rich with the promised blessing, and most of you relative to the world are rich with money. You're rich. And each of us has at least one Lazarus lying outside our gate. Inside your gate, you feel safe. You're in control, or at least you think you're in control. Lazarus threatens that control and makes you feel unsafe. Lazarus is the last and the least of these. So you've got these in your life. Who's the last and the least of these? That's, that's Lazarus. Lazarus is the person that you maybe just have shut out. Lazarus could be a homeless beggar. Lazarus could be a Syrian refugee. Now you can debate, okay? You can debate how to best love Lazarus, whether it's more money and more legislation spent on border control or less. You can debate that. Uh, you can debate how to best love love Lazarus, but you must love Lazarus. Scripture says, give to him who begs from you. It also says, if one won't work, don't let him eat. So you may be called to not give 
money, food, or alcohol to, to Lazarus, but you must give love to Lazarus. Lazarus may be a Syrian or a poor beggar, or Lazarus may be rich. You know, in John 11, just a bit before he's crucified, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. But the man's not a poor Gentile beggar. He's a rich man of Judah. In fact, his daughter, Mary, she's got this like vial of perfume that's valued at an entire year's wage. And she dumps it. She just dumps it on, on Jesus. I'm just saying that you each have a Lazarus. It's the one you consider last and the least of these. It, in a weird way, it could almost sometimes be yourself. But it's the one that threatens your control, your sense of safety, the one that you refuse to tolerate, the one that you refuse to forgive. Could, could be a beggar, could be a Syrian, could be your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, could be your husband or, or wife. Last week I kept thinking about awesome powers and Dr. Evil, like they were like in some way Lazarus to each other. And this week I kept thinking about Henry Bemis and his wife Helen and the Twilight Zone. Henry Bemis likes stories about people, but he doesn't like people. And once you meet Helen, you understand why. Yes, dear, I'm in the living room. You want more coffee or don't you? No, no thank you, dear. Well, then why don't you tell me that? And don't sneak off into the living room to bury yourself in newsprint. I think we've been over this quite enough, Henry. I won't tolerate a husband of mine sacrificing the art of conversation. We're playing cards tonight. I want you to change your shirt. We're going over to the Phillips house. Oh, dear. All right, Henry. Anything to say? No, dear, nothing to say. What time are we due there? In about 15 minutes. Right, I'll be ready on time. See that you are. <gasps> Henry? Yes, my dear? What have you got, Henry? Got? Got. Nothing, my dear. What's this? What the heck? This? Isn't that odd? Now, how did that get here? <laughs> and so we each have a Lazarus lying right outside our gate. That is our soul. Helen was Henry's Lazarus, the threat to his autonomy, his safety, and his control. Well, as we um, discussed last time, Jesus is talking to Jewish Pharisees, Luke 16, 14, who justify themselves, Luke 16, 15. And then he says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. So, so wouldn't, wouldn't that be autonomy, safety, control? What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Then 16 verse 19, Jesus tells our story. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores 
who was laid at his gate, desiring uh, to be fed, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to, to you, who would want to pass from there to Hades? Who would want to not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Who would want to empty himself, taking the form of a slave and descend into Hades? No mere man could do it, but no mere man would want to do it. But what about the one who fixed the chasm and came to level every chasm, every valley? What does he want? Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you, says Abraham, cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then uh, the rich man said, I beg you, therefore, Father that you would send Lazarus, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, allow them to hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Abraham says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Well, now that we've dealt with the elephant in the room, the story does raise some pretty important and obvious questions. Like number one, as, as we already have kind of asked, what does, what does make a, a person repent? And number two, what does it mean to be persuaded? And number three, what's the difference between Hades and heaven? In other words, what is salvation? It's a word we, word we throw around a lot, but what, what, what is it? So, so what, what does make a, a, a person repent? Have you ever thought about that? Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. You know what that is? That's the Bible, or most of the Bible. To the Pharisees, Jesus says this, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have life and it's they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisees wanted knowledge of the good and yet they crucified the good. God in flesh. Henry Bemis wanted knowledge of people, written stories but he didn't want people, living stories. Like Helen, they're hard to control and they're a, they're a pain in the, in the side or the bosom. The rich man's brothers, 
That's Israel. The rich man's brothers, the rich man's brothers have the Bible, and the rich man suggests that they also get Lazarus risen from the dead. Ironically, they do get a man risen from the dead, named Lazarus. John 11, 44 and 11, 47, the Pharisees believe, it says. They believe that Jesus performed the sign, and then 11, 53, they conspire to have him killed. They do have him killed, and Jesus rises from the dead, and they still are not persuaded. So it seems that you can believe Jesus rose from the dead and still not be persuaded. Not persuaded in the way that Jesus wants you to be persuaded. You can believe the Bible and believe in miracles and still be an evil and adulterous generation. You know, when I was younger, I used to spend a lot of time arguing with people that the Bible is true and Jesus rose from the dead. And more than ever, I believe the Bible is true. And I've seen just some knock your socks off miracles. Jesus did rise from the dead, but I don't spend much time arguing about it anymore. Though I'm glad to talk about it, I really am, with people uh, that want to believe it, but I don't spend much time arguing about it, for unless you want to believe it, you won't believe it. The way that Jesus wants you to believe it, Jesus wants you to be persuaded. You know, just like the rich man in the stories, the Pharisees believed the Bible. And the Pharisees believed that God raises the dead. That's what distinguished them from the Sadducees. They believed that God uh, raised the dead. They believed the Bible, but they could not be persuaded to love Lazarus or Gentiles or Syrians or tax collectors, or sinners, or the last and the least of these, their brethren. Here's another fascinating thing. Did you notice that Abraham said, let them, allow them to hear the law and the prophets? As if forcing a miracle on them might destroy their faith. As if arguing that they had to believe might prevent them from being persuaded in the way that Jesus wanted them to be persuaded. You may remember how Jesus refused to do mighty works for those that seemed to lack faith, as if forcing them to have to believe in love, and God is love, forcing them to have to believe in love would keep them from falling in love with love. That is being persuaded. Patho is the Greek verb. It means to cause someone to trust. And trust means faith. It can also be translated seduce or romance. You may remember one of my favorite stories that Soren Kierkegaard wrote about and told. It was about a king that fell in love with this peasant girl as he gazed at her from a distance, and, and the king realized that if he revealed his status, his riches, and his glory, he wouldn't know, and she wouldn't know if she loved him or just his riches. And he realized that if he forced her to love him, 
with the logical benefits of marrying the king, because there are some logical benefits to marrying the king, or if he forced her with his army, she wouldn't love him, but only fear his, his power. And so he realized that if she were to be romanced, seduced, or persuaded to fall in love with him, he would need to empty himself, take the form of a slave, and serve her. He would have to take the form of a Lazarus. He would have to become like Lazarus in the hope that she would see his heart and trust him. Patho, be persuaded. He didn't care whether or not she believed that there was a great king. That was easy enough to prove. That was not the issue. He cared that she would come to trust his heart. That she would be persuaded that he was her helper, her azer in, in Hebrew. In the, in the beginning, you, you may remember that Adam couldn't find his azer, his, his helper. So God makes Adam into Adam and Eve, and the rest of the Bible is the story of how God reveals to humanity, I am your azer. I am your husband. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. I wonder if he'd ever make himself one like Eliezer in order to persuade us. Well, the problem in Judah, the house of Israel, they believe the law and the prophets, but they're still not persuaded. They believe God raises the dead, and they're still not persuaded. The men of Judah have the Bible, and the men of Judah will witness a man risen from the dead, and the men of Judah have one other thing. They have Lazarus. But not risen from the dead like Jacob Marley and Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. They have Lazarus, that is Eliezer, hidden in the last and the least of these, their brethren. As I mentioned last time, Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer. El is the generic and Gentile word for God. Azer means help, helper, or, or husband. Eliezer means God is, is help. Jesus is the English form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh is Help or salvation. Now, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, you got to chew on this, okay? I'm not exactly sure exactly what, what uh, to make of all of that, but I do know that on that day, Jesus will say, whatever you did to the last and the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. That's the judgment. Well, if you surrender to the call of love in your Lazarus, aren't you surrendering to Jesus? Jesus in what Mother Teresa called his distressing disguise. Well, no, no matter what you think of all those wild, crazy ideas, I hope you see there's just incredible irony in this story. The rich man sees heaven, or a picture of heaven, from what we would call hell. And it turns out that heaven, 
is what he had or what he could have had all along. I mean, the kingdom of heaven was at hand in Lazarus, who he kept just outside his gate. The very same Lazarus he now wishes to send to his brothers. It's like heaven and hell, or Hades, were both at hand. Read scripture and you'll see that heaven and Hades both begin here. Or we're always here, and what we experience depends on what we see. If the rich man would have seen Lazarus, he would have discovered that Lazarus has an absolutely breathtaking story, like we talked about last time. But, but more than has a story, Lazarus is a story. He not only contains knowledge of love, he contains the presence of love. And God is love. So if the rich man would have truly seen Lazarus at his gate, he could have feasted with Lazarus every day. Like he now watches Abraham feasting with Lazarus on the other side of this chasm. If he would have seen, but he didn't want to see. And now in Hades, the vision burns. He sees that he didn't see. But now he is beginning to want to see. The rich man reminds me of Henry Bemis. One day, Henry Bemis emerges from a bank vault where he had escaped from people in order to read a book. And he gradually realizes that an H-bomb had gone off, a hydrogen bomb. Armageddon had happened, and all the people were dead. Seconds, minutes, hours. They crawl by on hands and knees for Mr. Henry Bemis, who looks for a spark in the ashes of a dead world. A telephone connected to nothingness. A neighborhood bar, a movie, a baseball diamond, a hardware store. The mailbox of what was once his house and is now a rubble. They lie at his feet as battered monuments to what was but is no more. Helen! Helen! Where are you? Mr. Henry Bemis on an eight-hour tour of a graveyard. Collected works of Dickens. Collected works of George Bernard Shaw. Poems by Browning, Shelley, Keats. Great dramas of the world. Books, books, all the books I'll need, all the books, all the books I'll ever want. This year, the next year, and the year after, and the year after that, and the year after that. Ah.
fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men. And Henry Bemis. Henry Bemis, now just a part of a smashed landscape. Just a fragment of what man has deeded to himself. Mr. Henry Bemis in the Twilight Zone. Henry Bemis sees that he does not see. And now he wants to see. He sees that he needs new glasses. And maybe he's beginning to see that he always needed new glasses. I mean, he always could see stories about love, but he couldn't see love and become part of the story of love. He didn't want to see Helen. A written story about love was something he could possess and make part of his plans. He could deed it to himself, but, 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 but love would possess him and make him part of her plans and deed him or covenant him to herself. You can control a book, but you can't control a Helen. Amen? Men? Yeah. You can control the knowledge of love, but love cannot be controlled. It cannot be controlled. And, and it's often just a pain in the, in the side, the bosom. And so Henry searched his books thinking that in them was life, and it's they that bear witness to love, yet he refused to surrender to love that he might have life. Henry wanted to possess stories about love and so wouldn't be possessed by love and become part of the story. What story? The love story. There may have been something very similar going on with Helen, but I'll let a marriage counselor like Francis exp explain that to you. They both wanted to possess love and so crucified love and therefore could not know love. Unless, of course, love rose from the dead. They both wanted to possess love, but life is allowing love to possess you. Well, anyway, Henry had books about love, but, 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 he, but he didn't know love. And here's another tragic irony. Because Henry refused to surrender to love, he never really understood the books anyway. You know, the Pharisees memorized the books and then crucified the meaning, the logos. Well, the rich man in Hades sees that he doesn't see, and yet he begins to, to want to see. As we said last time, Hades is not the end. Jesus is always the end. Yet on your way to the end, I'd advise you to do everything in your power not to spend any time in Hades. Well, the rich man was in Hades. I think he, he, uh, 
had always lived, he was in Hades, but I think he had always lived in the twilight zone. What's the twilight zone? Well, this world is the twilight zone, like a boundary between heaven and Hades, like a boundary between creation and chaos, between love and not love, between light and dark, God and not God. And this is the issue, this is the question, not do you know that you're supposed to feed beggars? The Pharisees knew that. It was in the law and the prophets. Uh, the issue is not do you know that a man rose from the dead, but do you want Jesus to rise from the dead. And the issue is not do you see beggars, but do you want to see Eliezer? Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to meet your helper, your husband, your Azer? I imagine that Eliezer knew that God was his helper. And maybe Eliezer could have helped the rich man to see that God was also his helper. Maybe King Jesus is in Lazarus in distressing disguise, persuading the rich man to love, love. God is love. And do you realize he's constantly persuading you to love Love? He's constantly asking. He's asking this, Adam, who's your helper? Do you see me? Do you want, do you want me? I am love. Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would see and we would know, number one, the hope to which we are called. It's a banquet. And number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There's treasure in Abraham and Lazarus. The, the treasure circulates between the two of them. And number three, the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who have faith. Faith is God's power in us. It is not exalted among men. But anything other than faith in love or faith working through love is an abomination in the sight of God. So the story makes us ask some, some questions. Number three, what is it to, to be saved? Isn't it the ability to enjoy the banquet of love? And God is love. And what does it mean to be persuaded? Well, isn't it to have faith in love? Evidenced by the fact that you'd want to invite Lazarus to dinner because you love love. And what makes a person repent? That's a, that's a good question. In other words, what creates faith in love? Is it a book? Is it a knock your socks off miracle? Romans 2.4, Paul writes this. He, he writes about judgment. And then he says, don't you know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Then Romans 12.20. Having explained the judgment of grace, Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. In other words, be kind to your enemy and you'll burn him. He talks as if love is the very flame of the Lord, the Shalabat Yah, the breath of Yahweh, the word of Yahweh. Be kind and you will breathe fire and burn your enemies. And, and that kindness, that kindness leads to repentance, but not only in your enemy, also in you. 
And maybe, just maybe, you are your own worst enemy. As if Dr. Evil were a lie that had taken on flesh in you. For nine years, I was a youth pastor in California. And uh, routinely, every summer, and, and more than once a year, after a while, we would go to Mexico to build houses for the poor in the abandoned Tijuana city dump. I've been all over the world, including Mozambique, which at the time was, I think, ranked as the, ranked as the poorest country in the world, and I've never seen poverty like I did in the Tijuana dump. Families live there, sorting through trash in order to stay alive. One time we arrived and a young mother had just given birth to a baby under a piece of carpet slung over a rope, and from the dump, you could see San Diego. So you see, the poverty wasn't just physical. Many were Indian or mestizo, and so they had been rejected by their fellow Mexicans, and they were all rejected by America. I'm not making a political argument here. I'm just saying that they were an awful lot like Lazarus, and we were rich. We were from Bel Air, Presbyterian Church. And like I said, we came several times a year. But it wasn't always like that. When I first arrived at the church, we had this evangelism canoe trip. The, the idea was to entice the kids with canoeing, you know, and then persuade them each night with convincing tales of great miracles and reasoned arguments from the Bible. We had an evangelism canoe trip, and, and then I introduced the, the Mexico trip. It was only, only for kids that were already committed. You know, hardcore Christians, do the thing. Well, after the first year, I couldn't get anyone to go on the canoe trip. And everyone wanted to go on the Mexico trip. But worse than that, for nine years, kids would repent and be persuaded on the wrong trip. The wrong, the wrong one. Very few were persuaded to believe on the evangelism canoe trip, but on the Mexico trip, when supposedly they had already been persuaded, around the campfire just about every night after a day of sweat, stink, and painful love, they would keep standing up and saying stuff like this. For the first time, I believe in God, and I want to give him my life. And it wasn't my convincing Bible arguments. It wasn't my stories of knock your socks off miracles. But for the first time, for the first time, I, I think this is what was going on. For the first time, kids from Bel Air, California, some rich beyond your wildest imagination, they've like felt a fire burning in their veins and it flowed from them into destitute Mexicans and back from those destitute Mexicans into them like across a chasm. It wasn't always pretty. It was almost always messy. But they knew it wasn't only them. That fire was not only them. So all I had to do was tell them, I think that's the life of God. That's the Shalabet Yah. It's kindness revealed in weakness. It's love that is unearned and free. It's grace. Trust him. He's your helper.
And you know, it was then that they heard the law and the prophets. It was then that dead words became living word. Not dead love, living love. And love is what makes a person repent. Love. Love makes a person repent. And now you may say, well, wait, wait a minute. Are you saying that the plan of salvation is not essential? Are you saying that the death and resurrection of Jesus is something small? Are you saying that faith doesn't matter? No! I'm saying that faith is the only thing that matters. I'm saying the death and resurrection of Jesus is not small. It's so huge you can't even begin to comprehend it. And the plan of salvation is an entire new creation. I'm saying that when you love, the life of love is rising from the dead in you. If you take credit for that love, you crucify love. But if you're grateful for that love, you are the body of love. To put it in theological jargon, if you believe, like the Pharisees, that you can justify yourself with works of love, you kill love. But if you believe that love has justified you, you are the living, breathing body of love. In, in the language of Scripture, you have been granted Repentance. Repentance is a gift. And if you don't think so, you're not repenting. When you have faith in love and therefore love because you want to love, it's not just you. It's Christ Jesus rising from the dead in you. It's not the result of words. It's the word. It's not the result of seeing miracles. It is the miracle. God is love. God creates faith in love. Love repents you and he uses Lazarus to do it. You don't have to travel to Mexico or Syria to find Lazarus. God has provided each of you with a Lazarus. Someone that you think doesn't deserve love and yet God is calling you to love that you might learn that love is undeserved and free. In other words, love is not a dead thing you can control. Love is your living Lord. And nothing is as powerful as he. And by the way, it's always true that we love because he first loved us. First love was revealed at the cross. Yet, uh, Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. He said, when I am lifted up, I will romance all people unto myself. And he was speaking of his cross. So first love is revealed at the cross, yet Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world, and he is rising in every moment of space and time, for he will fill all things. He is the word of love through which all things are created, especially you. So when it was clear that none of us deserve love or could make ourselves love, when it was clear that we were poor and could not help ourselves, God spoke his word into the abyss and revealed that he is our helper, our azer.
In other words, on the night that he was betrayed by us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant, the deed in, in my blood, uh, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. God spoke his word into the abyss and revealed that he is our helper, our azer. I suspect Lazarus knew that. I suspect Eliezer knew that because he knew that he could not help himself, and so God needed to help him. The rich man would also know that once he realized that God is his helper and he can't help himself. And if you think to yourself, gosh, I wonder if I realize that. I wonder if I need to repent. How do I repent? Well, I'd suggest these, these three things. And you can look up there on the slide, the three dashes. Number one. Chew on this story and let it burn you. I mean, maybe it's not a dead story. Maybe it's living word. Number two, pay attention to your Lazarus. Now, you know who that is. I don't know who that is for you, but it's the one that's just outside your gate. He's not there by accident. He's there, she's there to teach you something. Number three, when you feel or see love, surrender to love. Love is repenting you. And in this is love. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both fire. So uh, that's the power of love. And in the end, it even makes Dr. Evil repent. Last time I said that uh, Dr. Evil reminded me of Satan. However, I don't know that Satan or the devil can repent because I don't think the devil is what we would call a person. So I don't think there's anything there to repent. That's what I suspect. However, he speaks a lie into us that uh, turns people into children of the devil, a lie that takes on flesh in, in us. He makes us evil. Uh, he creates in us a false self, a, a, a liar like Dr. Evil, like the Pharisees, and yet it's in that very place when and where we know that we don't deserve love that he reveals love. Kindness in the midst of our failure. Love is our father, and with his word of love, he repents us and makes us in his image. I began with Dr. Evil, and I just want to show you that the end of Dr. Evil is love. What are you going to do now, Austin? Dad, what are you doing here? I've got to finish this off once and for all. I'm afraid you can't do that. I have to protect my son. Dad, I'm fine. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about him. 
What? Dr. Evil's not your son. I am. You both are. Very interesting story, Mr. Powers. Of course, I'm going to have to wait until I see all the facts. Daddy! <laughs> Shh. Daddy's here, Ducky. Shh. Dougie? Shh. Dougie? Dougie, remember Dougie. Dad, what's going on? What are you going to do, Austin? Austin, hmm? are you sure you can trust Dr. Evil? He ain't heavy. He's my brother, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ducky! I'm Ducky! And so that's the end of Dr. Evil. And J.R. Tolkien said, you cannot keep the gospel out of stories. The revelation of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, Creating a brother, love makes Dr. Evil repent. And now may you repent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit of love.